This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm David Pogue, and this is Unsung Science. The lost Ocean Gate submersible has been front-page headlines all week, all over the world. That's the 22-foot, one-of-a-kind carbon fiber sub that has been taking passengers down to see the Titanic for $250,000 a person. This news has horrifying resonance for me because I was on one of its dives last summer. I spent nine intense days with its designer, OceanGate CEO Stockton Rush, and Titanic dive veteran P.H. Narjolet. Both men, along with three paying passengers, are presumed dead on the lost sub. Now the questions and recriminations have begun. Was OceanGate's sub a poorly designed accident waiting to happen, or just the victim of the unpredictable business of deep-sea exploration in the dangerous North Atlantic? Six months ago, we posted a two-part unsung science story about my time with OceanGate. It focused heavily on the safety and design of the sub, which are now coming under global scrutiny. Today, we're going to present those two earlier unsung science episodes edited down into one episode, accompanied by my after-the-fact commentary. As you listen, remember that nobody knew tragedy was coming. There are moments when people seem lighthearted and happy. Think of this recording as a historical document that captures the feeling at the time. Okay, here's how that December 2022 episode began. On the night of April 14, 1912, on her maiden voyage, the RMS Titanic struck an iceberg. Iceberg, right ahead! She tipped nose down, broke in half, and sank to the bottom of the North Atlantic. More than 1,500 people died. The wreck was discovered in 1985. Since then, scientists are just about the only people who've seen the Titanic in person. Until now. 
I'm David Pogue, and this is Unsung Science. Can you, in a nutshell, describe this business? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're wrapped. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> this is Stockton Rush. If his first and last name ring any kind of a bell, then you must be a history nut. Richard Stockton and Benjamin Rush were two of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. This Rush is directly descended from both men, but Stockton's dream was not to become a statesman. My whole life, I wanted to be an astronaut. I was part of the, you just said the tail end of the Apollo crowd. I went and got an aerospace engineering degree with that goal. I wanted to be a fighter pilot, but my eyesight isn't good enough for that. Oh no. It was when I had this epiphany that it wasn't about going to space. It was about exploring. It was about finding new life forms. I wanted to be sort of the Captain Kirk. Um, I didn't want to be the passenger in the back. <laughs> and I realized that the ocean is is the universe. That's where life is, and it fit very well. It turns out that an aerospace engineering degree actually has helped me do things in the submersible world that people who don't understand compressible fluid flows didn't quite figure out. His baby is an undersea adventure company called OceanGate. For $250,000, he'll take you to the bottom of the North Atlantic in a custom-made experimental submersible to see the wreck of the Titanic for yourself. It's a very unusual business. It's its own category. It's a new type of travel. It's sort of on the cutting edge, I think, of the whole um, adventure travel movement. Is it kind of like the, the new uh, rocketry taking up citizens? Yeah, I think it, from a, a procedure standpoint, it's similar. So we go through you know, a lot of checklists, a lot of procedures, a lot of sign-offs. The life support systems are basically identical. Who are the typical clientele. So we have clients that are uh, titanic enthusiasts, which we refer to as titaniacs. <laughs> and some of those folks are uh, affluent and some are not. So we have people who have mortgaged their home to come and do the trip. And we have people who don't think twice about a trip of this, this cost. Hmm. We had one gentleman uh, who had won the lottery. From a news perspective, two parts of this OceanGate story were interesting to us. First of all, Nobody else is going to the Titanic anymore. The last time anybody went to the Titanic was a, was a brief trip in 2019. And before that, the last time anybody went in a, in a submersible, I think, was 2005, 2007. Um, so no one's been down there and no one's planning to go back. So you're us, it? Pretty much. <laughs> wow. Why isn't it the most studied, visited archaeological well, site? Yeah, I mean, world? it's very difficult to do. It costs a lot to get that ship out there. The other thing we found interesting was that this isn't just a tourism outfit. Every OceanGate expedition to the Titanic also has scientists aboard doing actual research. In effect, the paying passengers are subsidizing the science. Are these scientific expeditions or are they, are they adventure travel expeditions? So they are a blend. Um, they are technically adventure travel with a science component. Every dive has a scientific purpose or a research or an exploration purpose, but it is funded by somebody who's looking for an adventure travel experience. Our home for the next nine days was going to be a gigantic blue industrial ship called the Horizon Arctic, which is ordinarily used for hauling around floating oil rigs and sometimes icebergs. Stockton Rush had rented it and its crew for the summer to carry us and his experimental submersible. Now, the back of the ship is a huge, flat, open deck. 
It's ordinarily filled with enormous oil rig components. And the front is the ship part, and it's eight decks tall. So the whole ship looks kind of front-heavy. But on that back deck, shining in the summer sun, there it was. Stockton Rush's Submersible. It's one of only five subs in the world capable of reaching titanic depths and the one that I'd be spending 12 hours in myself if I got lucky. The sub is called the Titan. The main center section looks like a shiny white tube about minivan length. It's made of five-inch thick carbon fiber, which nobody's ever used in a submersible before. I asked Rush about that. And surely there was some pushback when you're like, I'm going to design my sub to take non-scientists to the Titanic out of a material that hasn't been used before. Yes. I mean, anything when you're trying something outside the box, people inside the box think you're nuts. And what's the virtue of the carbon fiber? Uh, It's three times better on a strength to buoyancy basis than titanium. (laughs) And so that's in underwater, that's what you care about. By having a light hull, you have a smaller uh, vessel Uh, Therefore, you can have a smaller ship. You know, everything starts to get a little bit easier. At each end of the white tube is a shiny silver dome. They're like end caps. We have the forward dome, three and a quarter inch thick titanium. And then on the back there, another hemisphere of titanium. This is mission director Kyle Bingham giving me a tour. There's also a weird looking stub mounted to the back dome, which he calls the rear cage. This rear cage holds our batteries, our electronics, and a little bit of foam on the top to help trim the whole thing up. The front end cap has a 22-inch round window made of 7-inch thick plexiglass, so you can see out. When you get to the bottom of the ocean, that's your view of the Titanic. That, and whatever the exterior cameras are showing you. Rush gave me a tour of the inside. Take your shoes off, that's customary. Okay. Wow! It's like a, it's like a minivan. Yeah, it's like the Suburban. It's a little bigger than you would think. It's decently sized. So so this is not your grandfather's submersible. (laughs) Um, Most of the deep diving subs were made with a purpose. They wanted to collect a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. It was a science tool. So there wasn't a lot of thought given to creature comforts. They tend to be spheres. They're small. They're cramped. Uh, They don't have a toilet. You have a little toilet. Well, kind of. If you have to go to the bathroom during the dive, you can crawl into the window end of the sub and hang up a black cloth for privacy, there's a one-foot square box on the floor that contains Ziploc bags. And that's your toilet. Rush promises that they turn up the music really loud when you're in the bathroom. There are a couple of touchscreen PC monitors on the floor of the sub, but otherwise there are no controls in this thing. Wait a minute, I've, I've seen submersibles, and yeah. they are banks of controls, yeah. like, like cockpit after cockpit. Exactly, yeah. It's like, yeah, you can have a lot of buttons and things like that, or you can use modern technology to make it simple. So how so, do you drive it? We run the whole thing with this game controller. <laughs> Come on! Well, this thing is made for a 16-year-old to throw it around, and we keep a couple of spares. I'm not kidding. He drives his multi-million dollar sub with a white plastic Xbox game controller. And that's not the only part of the sub that seemed kind of jerry-rigged. Take, for example, the ceiling lights. I got these from uh, Camper World, um, (laughs) and they are LED lights in here, um, and a nice little decorative feature. And then there are the cameras. We have uh, a number of cameras that are actually security cameras. A lot of subs have custom-made video capture systems. By getting rid of that and just saying, look, we just want to capture the image and know where we are, we can use these off-the-shelf components. Later... 
When I interviewed Rush at his headquarters near Seattle, I asked him about that. It seems like this submersible has some elements of MacGyvery jerry rigness. You're like, we bought these handles off camperworld.com. And you're like, these thrusters are modified from some, some other purpose. I don't know if I'd use that description of it, um, but there's certain things that you want to be uh, buttoned down, and that's the pressure vessel. The pressure vessel is the carbon fiber tube, the part that keeps the human beings alive. So the pressure vessel is not MacGyvered at all because that's where we work with Boeing and NASA and the University of Washington. That part, you know, once the pressure vessel is, you're certain it's not going to collapse on everybody, everything else can fail. You know, it doesn't matter. Your thrusters can go, your lights can go, all these things can fail, you're still going to be safe. Mm -hmm. And so that allows you to do what you call MacGyverish stuff. You just have to be very careful that the life support system, the, the sub itself, the oxygen system, the carbon dioxide scrubbing, all that stuff, that needs to be buttoned down. But, but surely I'm not the first layperson to say, I can't believe this is more finished, solid, state-of-the-art, NASA electronic. I mean, you're putting construction pipes as ballast. Uh, people are surprised by it. I, not people in the industry, because uh -huh. that's what they do. I mean, the French had bags of stuff they dropped. Uh, the Russians use just steel, you know, uh, a shot and with a little <laughs> magnetic release and they drop it. All deep diving subs are prototypes. Are there ever clients who are taken aback and expected something more polished? Yeah. Yes. Really? Yeah. When we started out, we did have cases where uh, a travel agent or a travel consultant would lead them to believe this was like going to the Four Seasons and booking a zip lining trip. And we'll never be like that. Now, I've been the host of 20 Nova science specials on PBS, and I've done a lot of shenanigans to make science telegenic. I've gone hang gliding, I've been given electric shocks, I've been subjected to extreme temperatures, I've pet 13-foot sharks in the Bahamas. But I've never feared for my life. Gotta tell ya, this was different. I mean, here are just a few choice excerpts from the waiver you have to sign. <clears throat> the experimental submersible vessel has not been approved or certified by any regulatory body. Any failure could cause severe injury or death. The support vessel is an industrial vessel not designed for passenger operations and presents many hazards, including property damage, injury, disability, or death. If I choose to assist in the servicing of the submersible, I will be exposed to high-pressure gases, high-voltage electrical systems, and other dangers that could lead to property damage, injury, disability, and death. I hereby assume full responsibility for the risk of bodily injury, disability, or death. Okay, great. Where do I sign? I mean, I was actually scared. Last year, at the end of one Titanic dive, OceanGate had trouble getting the sub back onto the ship. Those poor mission specialists, they wound up spending 27 hours in the sub. Granted, the company says the sub has 96 hours worth of oxygen and power, and Stockton isn't exactly an amateur. As a young man, he designed and built his own fiberglass airplane, which he still flies. Titan isn't even his first submersible. But it just doesn't help your anxiety much when somebody says stuff like this. There's a limit. You know, at some point, safety just is pure waste. I mean, if you just want to be safe, don't get out of bed. Don't get in your car. Don't do anything. At some point, you're going to take some risk. And it really is a risk-reward question. I said, I think I can do this just as safely by breaking the rules. Bottom line, the last couple of nights before the expedition, I didn't sleep at all. 
I mainly worried about three things. First, I worried that the sub would collapse under the pressure, 6,000 pounds per square inch once you're down there. That's about the pressure you'd feel on your chest if 46 school buses parked on your sternum. But Rush reminded me that the deeper you go, the tighter the water presses those titanium end caps onto the carbon fiber tube. The whole thing becomes more waterproof the deeper it goes. Oh, okay. Second, I worried about running out of air. The Titan uses the same kind of oxygen scrubbers that they use on submarines and spacecraft. They convert carbon dioxide back into oxygen. But what if that system breaks down? Well, I learned that the Titan also carries chemical scrubber strips that you can break out and hang from the ceiling in an emergency. And as a backup backup, it's got plain old scuba oxygen tanks in storage under the floor. Oh, really? But I also worried about getting back to the surface. Exactly what kind of ballast did this thing have? First, there are three enormous, heavy, black, beat-up construction pipes on each side of the sub. Here's Kyle Bingham. These triple weights, we call them, uh, are hydraulically driven, so we operate inside. Doesn't take any electricity, can be done manually, and those drop away and gain us a lot of buoyancy. Dropping that much weight onto the sea floor means the sub starts rising. Okay, but what if the hydraulic system breaks? Well, then they have roll weights. Uh, so we've got these weights here on the side. These are roll weights. We can actually roll this up and those come off. That gains us some buoyancy to come back to the surface. These are pipes that sit on a shelf that juts out from either side of the sub, held in place only by gravity. If everyone inside the sub shifts their weight to one side, the sub tips enough to let these pipes roll off. And if that doesn't work, there are ballast bags full of metal shot hanging below the sub. These bags that hang down below, we drop those off using motors and electric fingers. Okay, but what if the electronics go out and the hydraulics fail and everyone inside has passed out unconscious? There's fusible links within these uh, that actually can dissolve, those drop off. Fusible links are dissolving bonds after 16 hours in the seawater, those bonds disintegrate, the weight bags drop off, and you go back to the surface. And even those four systems aren't the end of it. The sub's thrusters can also push you up. The pilot can jettison the sub's legs as dead weight. And there's even an airbag that they can inflate to provide buoyancy. All told, that's seven different ways to get the sub back up to the surface. Wow, those are a lot of backups of backups. Yes. I asked Stockton Rush about the whole danger thing. How dangerous is it? I don't think it's very dangerous. If you look at uh, submersible uh, activity over the last three decades, there hasn't even been a, a major injury, uh, let alone a fatality. What worries us is not once you're underwater. What worries me is when I'm getting you there. When you're on the ship in icy states with big doors that can crush your hands and people who may not have the best balance who fall down, uh, bang their head. That's, that's to me the dangerous part. Mm -hmm. But the scary part for most people is you know, going down to 6,000 PSI. Yeah, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive. I would yeah. certainly not expect life on the surface ship to be the dangerous part. Yeah. Once we're down there, what are the things to worry about? So what I worry about most are things that will stop me from being able to get to the surface overhangs, uh, fishnets, entanglement hazards, and that's just a technique, you know, piloting technique. You, it's pretty clear. 
if it's an overhang, don't go under it. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. if uh, if there's a net, don't go near it. So um, you can you can avoid those if you're just slow and steady. Most of our fellow expeditioners were rich people seeking adventure, like a hedge fund guy with his son, an artificial intelligence pioneer who'd sold a bunch of companies, and Shrenik Baldota, who runs a massive industrial conglomerate in India. And you have a nickname? Yeah, they call me a wild monk. Uh, the, the wild monk? Yeah, <laughs> because I look like a monk. I, I'm very calm, but uh, I have these extreme uh, interests that I do. Going into a live volcano in Vanuatu, two times to Antarctica, uh, on the edge of space flight, swimming with the blue whales, catching crocodiles in Botswana with National Geography. And then there was Renata Rojas. She is not a hedge fund dude, or the owner of a major industrial complex. She works in a bank. You don't strike me as a multimillionaire. I am not a multimillionaire. <laughs> I've been saving to do this my entire life. When you told people that you were spending almost the price of a small house to do this one-day trip, did you get any reactions? Most people think I'm crazy by spending all this money. My response is, dreams don't have a price. Some people want a Ferrari. Some people have children. Some people buy a house. I want to go to Titanic. She's not kidding. She really wants to see the Titanic. I'm trying to fulfill a dream, a um, quest that I've had since I'm a child. But then I saw the movie and I to remember in black and white and the mystery of Titanic having banished something so large and magnificent, having banished from the face of the earth. Nobody knew where it was. So the quest became trying to find a private submersible company that would be willing to go to Titanic. And I stumbled into OceanGate. She was the company's very first customer. She joined the very first two expeditions, the first two weeks of operation in 2021. But the Titan had mechanical problems the first week and never made it down to the Titanic. A year went by. Since she'd missed her chance the first year, OceanGate gave her a free do-over this summer. Renata Rojas was finally going to achieve her dream. Except her bad luck struck again, this time in the form of air travel hell. Well, there was a 4th of July weekend and Canada Day. I got stuck in the airports. My flights got canceled. And I, I ended up landing in St. John's too late to meet the boat. It almost seems like the universe wants to tell you something. And for a second, you just want to give up. You do think, all this effort, for what? <laughs> That's why I wanted to talk to you, because you have been wanting to do this for... 40 years. 40 years. 40 years. And at least twice now, it's been in your grasp and then taken away. Three times. Three times. Has been on my grasp. So psychologically, mm -hmm. what do you tell yourself to not lose your mind? You just cry a lot and just keep the dream alive because it's something that, that I, I have to do. I think it's next week, Renata. I hope so. <laughs> if it's not next week, it will happen. Next year. Maybe it's next year. Hi, it's present day David again. We'll be back shortly. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure 
how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is David again, now in the present, June 2023. These Ocean Gate expeditions are nine days long, two days to reach the wreck on a surface ship, then five days sitting over it. So in theory, Ocean Gate could visit the Titanic as many as five times during our trip. The thing is, in its three summers of operation, Ocean Gate never made five dives to the wreck. On a typical expedition, they get down there only once or twice. The weather can be terrible in the North Atlantic. Also, the sub often has problems of its own. On the first of the five potential diving days, my producer and I boarded the sub. We'd already been given some unfortunate news. The waves were just too rough for a dive to the Titanic. The CBS gang would not be seeing the famous shipwreck. But Stockton Rush had proposed a consolation dive to the Continental Shelf, the Grand Banks, 80 miles away. He said we might see shark breeding grounds, towering underwater cliffs, and maybe marine creatures nobody's ever seen before. And we'd still get the experience of a deep-sea dive in his submersible. But even this dive, with its scaled-back ambitions, was a bust. Let's go back to the original episode. The water was aqua and bubbly as we went down. Yeah, we're we're underwater. Oh, we are. Oh, <laughs> we're underwater. <laughs> 12 meters. That would be something like 36 feet. All integrity, holding. This was it. This was the precise moment when the divers went to unclip our sub from the platform. And that's precisely when the bridge of the ship radioed us. Go ahead, topside. Uh, in that they sunk all the way under, or they came undone? Uh, they came undone. They're bringing this back up. They're bringing it back up? Yep. Oh, something happened. Two sausage-shaped black buoys, about three feet long, had somehow come off the platform. I, I guess they're designed to keep the corners of the platform stable, but now they were bobbing away on the waves. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So we're scrubbing? Yeah, yeah, I think that's the consensus up here. Copy that. Not an exact science. Anyway, everything down to knot tying. I was crushed. So that concludes our voyages on the Titan submersible. Uh, 37 feet and that's it. So at this point, there are two days left of good weather where they're hoping to do dives to the Titanic, but that's for paying passengers only, and that's not us. So we'll do our best to film and record and tell that story, uh, but we will not be on the submarine. My submersible adventures were over. I would not be seeing the Titanic in person. 
I spent about a day bumming out. This was not what I'd hoped for, not what CBS Sunday Morning had hoped for. I didn't even know if we'd still have a story. But when I chatted with Renata Rojas the next day, one of the paying passengers, I realized that maybe I wasn't so special. Every expedition has its challenges, all of them. I have not been in one expedition where things have to be adjusted, adapted, changed, or canceled. We're not a cruise ship. You're at the mercy of, you know, the weather. And taking tightening the water, you have currents. So you don't necessarily land on top of Titanic. You may land 500 meters away, and you have to find it in the bottom of the ocean. Finally, on our fourth day parked over the Titanic, the weather cleared. The first three of the paying passengers were finally going to get their chance to see the Titanic. They made fantastic time getting to the bottom, about two hours. The GoPros inside the sub recorded everything. Coming up on a mile underwater, people. Mile low club. (laughs) Mile low club, get it? They had a ball during the descent. They put on music, they bantered, they joked. They saw cool bioluminescent critters out the porthole. We seeing weird stuff there or not? Yeah, no, we were getting also small firefly things, but nothing major, no major light shows. But when the lights are off, we're seeing more stuff in terms of fluorescence. Meanwhile, I was up at Mission Control on the bridge of the ship. That's where Stockton Rush's wife, Wendy, works communication with the sub. See, radio waves can't travel through seawater. Fortunately, sound does travel. So the only way for the ship and the sub to communicate is to exchange short text messages through the water column using acoustical signals, like over a 1990 modem. A couple of hours into the dive, we on the ship got one of those text messages from the sub. Wendy read us the good news. Titan sitting at 3742 meters reports on bottom. The sub had successfully reached the bottom of the ocean. They had not, however, located the Titanic. I'm seeing not a thing out here other than starfish. Turns out that finding the shipwreck itself is easier said than done, according to Ocean Gate Director of Engineering, Phil Brooks. You have this giant ocean, and where the Titanic wreck is, is it's literally a needle in a haystack, and we have to guide them in. And our only reference are those coordinates, the GPS coordinates. So we have to guide them into the wreck. You can be five meters away from the wreck and not know it. That was something I hadn't really considered. There is no GPS underwater. So if you're the pilot of the sub, how do you know where you are? How do you find the wreck of the Titanic? Okay, here's the situation. The sub is 200 yards that way and 2.4 miles straight down. And they can't, the sun makes me sneeze. They can't find the Titanic. See, the sub has no GPS location system. Instead, they rely on the ship to tell them, turn right, turn left, go forward to find the ship. But the ship's two GPS systems are not agreeing with each other, so they don't know what to tell the sub. And it's coming time that they're gonna have to start thinking about coming up again. The sub does have sonar, but its range is pretty limited. So if you're not even close to the wreck, you have to rely on directions provided by the mission directors at the surface. It's like a game of battleship. They text you forward 50 feet, right 100 feet. I said, do you know where we are? 100 meters to the bow, then 470 to the bow. If you are lost, so are we. (laughs) Honest, Pete. 
But on this occasion, something wasn't quite making sense. How can we be in grade 83 then? Correct. Yeah. yeah. I think someone's reading it backwards. Yeah. Wendy Rush continued sending directions to the sub. Turn 30 degrees right? Probably, yeah, 30 degrees. An hour later, in the sub. What they say? So 400 meters due east, but that's going to take us away. That makes sense from the map. Due east doesn't make sense. Two hours later. We need to turn 180 yeah, degrees. Come. We're heading northwest. What? Thomas just says we need to turn 180. Okay. Hang on. And then came the message from the ship that Stockton Rush really didn't want to receive. Bottom time up. What do you want to do? <laughs> Bottom time up. So now what? You've got three passengers on your sub who've paid a quarter of a million dollars apiece, and all it's bought them is a glimpse of a boiler lying in the Titanic's massive debris field. No shipwreck. And now, headquarters two and a half miles over you is telling you to give up. What do you do? Well, Stockton Rush had to accept defeat. The three paying passengers aboard Dive 79 would not be seeing the great ship. Not this year, anyway. Two hours later, the sub was back on the surface. Once the passengers had had a chance to get some food and decompress, I spoke once again to our industry mogul passenger, Shrenik Baldota. It was beautiful. I mean, it was going in space with absolutely zero friction, gently descending at 300 feet, beautiful. It's pitch dark, and there's absolutely zero sound, except for the music that you're playing inside, and we're talking. Uh, did you see any cool stuff on the way yeah, down or the way up? Oh, yeah. We had illuminous creatures going down, and when you see it out, it was beautiful. Magical. Wow, things really were, were glowing at you? All glowing. Bottom line, he said that the trip was great. Just maybe not $250,000 great. We were lost. We were lost for two and a half hours. You didn't find the bow? We didn't find the bow. There was some communication gap between the ship and the sub pilot, so that's how we missed the opportunity. Rush says he'll offer those passengers a complimentary do-over next year. If there's a mechanical delay, you get to come, you know, you get a full credit to do it again. You can try again? Yeah. If there's a weather delay, you get a 50% credit, which is, you know, better than hella skiing or going to your ski resort. Mm -hmm. So we, we've sort of looked at different elements of that, things that we can control, things that we can't control. When we studied the map of the sub's path during that dive, we saw the real heartbreak. The sub had actually been within 100 yards of both the bow and the stern at different points in their journey, but never knew it. Time was running out for this expedition. We'd spent four days floating over the Titanic, and the submersible hadn't succeeded in reaching it even once. Three more paying passengers had yet to set foot inside the sub, and now there was only one more day before we had to head back to St. John's. One last chance for them to find the Titanic. And, incredibly, as though we were being rewarded for our patience and understanding, the seas that day were calm. The weather was beautiful, and the sub was fully functional. All systems were go for dive number 80. This time, the sub's pilot was Scott Griffith. The scientist on board was our French Titanic expert, P.H. Nargelet. The remaining three mission specialists, that is, paying passengers, rounded out the contingent. Nargelet gave guidance to pilot Griffith as he peered out the round window at the front of the sub. Slow down, slow down, it's just in front of us. Just we are in front of the anchor. The anchor is just here. 
Yeah, yeah we're right off the bow. Right off the bow now. Bow's directly in front of us, like a probably six meters off our bow. Directly in front of us. That's incredible though. Just darkness, 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 and then all of a sudden just comes straight out. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you guys see it? I mean, you came up on it perfectly too. Like People were crammed around the porthole to see the ghostly image of the Titanic as the sub's lights fell on it. Well, we're sitting on the Titanic. Yeah. We're on the Titanic. <laughs> the ship looks really rusty, and parts of it are kind of caved in. But overall, its shape and structures are still surprisingly distinct after 110 years. It's covered with these rusty sort of icicles called, of course, rusticles. Turns out the ship is not actually rusting away. It's slowly being eaten by this deep-sea, iron-eating bacteria called Halomonas titanicae. Narjale narrated the tour so the passengers would know what they were seeing. And now, on the right here, we'll have the, the mast. I don't see the mast. You see oh, here, it's on the left. Yes, okay. here it's on the left. Right. And you have the door of the co-nest just in front of us. Mm -hmm. As the sub drifted along the massive wreck, its thrusters sometimes stirred up a little silt, but it never came in contact with the Titanic. On this particular dive, the Titan's exterior lights were on the fritz. They'd occasionally blink off for a couple of seconds. And man, when they were off, you really understood just how dark it is down there. It's about the darkest place you can be. Sunlight doesn't come anywhere close to penetrating this far down, 2.4 miles. Makes you realize, except when there's a submersible shining its lights, the Titanic lives in pitch blackness all the time. There's a tree balcony, and after is a bridge. That's where Jack and Rose first saw each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and here is a telemotor with a plaque. You see all the plaques? Oh, the plaques, plaques yeah, yeah, yeah. And the telemotor is just in the middle of here. Oh, those are plaques laid down there? Yeah. yeah. The telemotor is the post that once supported the ship's wheel. It's a hydraulic device that controlled the ship's rudder. And why is it open to the water? since it's supposed to have been inside the bridge where the captain stood? Because the walls of the bridge have long ago disintegrated. And a raid on the railing right in front of it is something you don't expect to see. A row of nine memorial plaques left behind by previous Titanic submersibles to commemorate their own visits. Kind of like when they planted the American flag on the moon. But it's this sudden unexpected reminder that you're not the first people to visit since 1912. After that, we'll see the uh, Davids number one. Is that for one of the light boats? Yes. Davits are these crane-like things they use to lower the lifeboats into the water. They look like rusty old candy canes, maybe 10 feet tall. So the square is what? What's the square? It's a skylight of skylight. the Marconi room. Uh -huh. The Marconi room was the radio room, where operators frantically sent out distress calls as the Titanic was going down. And after that is a grand staircase. The grand staircase is just here where it's black. That's where it blew out? Wow, I had no idea it was this big. We, we can see some chandelier. So uh, that chandelier is, is in the grand staircase? Yes, and it's suspended by the wire. Is that? Oh, yeah, there, you, yeah, you can yeah, see yeah, it? yeah, 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 yeah. You can see it? Chandeliers on the Titanic. On the grand staircase. Yes, that's the grand staircase that figures so prominently in the Titanic movie. But don't get all excited. The actual staircase is long gone. What they were seeing was the gaping space where it used to be. 
So for the submariners on dive number 80, it was a spectacular couple of hours visiting the great wreck. And then it was time to drop ballast and rise to the surface. Once they reached the ship, the mission specialists, the Ocean Gate staff, and even some of the ship's crew gathered to welcome the submariners back to the surface with glasses of bubbly held high. That would be bubbly apple juice, by the way. No alcohol whatsoever is allowed on these industrial ships. They're dangerous enough environments already. And then, that evening, we all gathered at the railing of our ship and held a little service to the memory of the 1,500 people who died when the Titanic sank. And then we all dropped carnations into the sea, directly above the wreck of the Titanic. And with the infinite expanse of ocean before us, with the sun setting, it was incredibly beautiful. Early on a Sunday morning, our ship pulled back into St. John's Harbor. I rolled my bag down the long ramp and set foot on solid ground. A couple of weeks later, I sat down with Stockton Rush to get his big-picture thoughts about his venture. Are you making money on this operation? Uh, no. Not yet. People might say, hey, that's a lot of money, $250,000. But yeah, we're not making any. It's very expensive. It is an extremely expensive activity. Um, Ultimately, it will be quite profitable. Um, And we're right at that hockey stick point of Mm. it. Can I ask how much gas costs this summer? We went through over a million dollars of gas. You know, this whole story has inspired a lot of reactions, a lot of feelings in people who saw the CBS Sunday Morning story or who listened to part one of this show. As for me, here are my three takeaways. First, I have a new respect for how hard it is to reach the Titanic. These mechanical problems and weather problems that OceanGate faced, every Titanic expedition has faced them. Bob Ballard, whose team found the wreck in 1985, faced one technical and weather problem after another. So did James Cameron, when he was trying to make his movie. It's just hard. Second, I feel as though OceanGate's marketing materials could be more transparent about how low the odds are of reaching the Titanic. I mean, we had five days over the wreck and made it to the Titanic only once. On most of their excursions, they get to the Titanic only twice, but sometimes not at all. Third, I appreciate that most people would never in a million years pay that kind of money for that kind of trip, whether because of the value proposition, the risk, or the claustrophobia. But a certain percentage of the population does thrive on thrills like this and has the money, or saved up the money, to fund them. I'm convinced that the ones who do see the Titanic get what they were looking for. One of them, I'm very happy to report, is Renata Rojas. Remember her, the bank executive who's wanted to visit the Titanic since she was a little girl, who'd been on three different expeditions with various companies, every single one of which was ultimately canceled? Well, after I returned home this summer, OceanGate made one more expedition. They do the whole thing five times a summer. And Renata was aboard. She got one last chance to visit the Titanic. And believe it or not, the Rojas curse finally broke. She made it all the way down. Suddenly, a big wall starts appearing in front of you that is clearly the bow. 
is so tall. Just to imagine that there's so much below the sand, it's, it's just magnificent. It's just beautiful. My initial reaction was, oh, speechless of, oh my God, it's, it's, we're here. <laughs> First of all, we're, we made it, finally made it. And then the, the awe of how it stands in, in the sand, it's, it's almost like it's going to keep going, it's like it's navigating still. It just stands still in time. What surprised her was how colorful the wreck was. Very colorful. You can see the red colors. You can see the rusticles that are orange. You can almost see the blackness of the actual bow, the paint of the bow. But in combination with the rusticles and, and some green, I, I thought she was beautiful. For Renata, the trip to its final resting place was worth the money, the cancellations, and the decades of waiting. It's a sense of completeness. You know, I feel like I was missing something in my life, and now it's not missing. It's I can die happy. Hi, this is David Pogue again, in the present day. As I re-listened to this episode, a lot of the things Stockton Rush said feel distinctly different to me, ominous. In the aftermath of this disaster, a lot of people are asking a lot of questions. Did Oceangate cut corners? Was Stockton's unconventional sub-design a factor in the loss? Should extreme adventure tourism be better regulated or even prohibited? I mean, every year, people die trying to climb Mount Everest. They die skydiving. They die scuba diving. Well, I know what I think. I've met the Ocean Gate adrenaline seekers. They know very well what kind of danger they're getting into. Some of them have been to space on rockets, have climbed Everest, have swum with sharks. Maybe you and I aren't cut from that cloth, but to them, danger brings joy. To them, the risk of death provides meaning to life. And that includes two of the people who were on the lost sub, Stockton Rush himself and P.H. Narjolet, the French Titanic expert and deep-sea explorer. They have spouses, they have families, and I'm shattered to think that they're gone. Also on board were three of the paying passengers, British billionaire Hamish Harding, Pakistani businessman Shazada Dawood, and his son, Suleiman. A devastating loss. I hope that this Unsung Science episode fills in some details of the Titan tragedy for you and brings you some insight into the people involved. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a joint venture of Simon & Schuster and CBS News and is produced by PRX Production. Today's episode was edited and produced by Jamie Benson. For Simon & Schuster, the executive producers are Richard Rohrer and Chris Lynch. The PRX production team is Jocelyn Gonzalez, Morgan Flannery, Pedro Rafael Rosado, and Morgan Church. Jesse Nelson composed the Unsung Science theme music. Our fact checker is Christina Ribello, and Olivia Noble fixed the transcripts. For more of my stuff, visit davidpogue.com or follow me on Twitter, at Pogue, P is in Peter, O-G-U-E. We'd love it if you'd like and follow Unsung Science wherever you get your podcasts. And spread the word, will you?
If you like Unsung Science, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.